Good morning to you all. My name's Lou. I'm one of the pastors here at The Journey. As we all know, we're in a crisis. It's a health crisis and an economic crisis. It's a political crisis and a, and a moral crisis. It's the COVID-19 pandemic and the collapse of the economy. It's the f- leadership failure of our government and the entrenched racism embedded in our country and revealed yet again by the recent murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and now Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. And in a time of crisis, it's important to remember who we are. We are Christ's church, God's people. We are chosen by God solely by grace and deeply loved by him. We are forgiven and saved by him, reconciled to God by him. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, who over time shapes us and transforms us and makes us holy. We are Christ's ambassadors, called and equipped by him to represent him in his kingdom to one another and to the world around us. And we are God's family adopted by him, welcomed, embraced, cherished by him. God is our father. Christ is our older brother. To use the language of Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers and sisters. And because we are in Christ's family, we are our family. We are brothers and sisters to one another. Lots of things have changed over the last four months, but these things have not. This is who we are. And so in line with the church from the earliest days, as Luke describes it in Acts 2.42, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, And to prayer, we come together for corporate worship. And we go out to do good and to bear witness to God's goodness and Christ's cross and resurrection. We embrace one another as brothers and sisters. We share life together and look out for one another as family. We continue to do all of this, just not the way we used to. We do it all from a physical distance, but the important thing is We continue to do all these things. The church, this church was never closed. And now we long to go back to the way things used to be, to be in one space together, to give one another hugs. But we need to face the fact that it will be a while before we go back together the way we used to. So what does it mean What does it look like to live as family in our current environment of uncertainty and division, discord and injustice and trauma? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And I'll be taking us to two passages, portions of two passages from 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5. I'll set the context, highlight some general themes and then apply them to our current situation, our specific context now. So reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 31 to 13, 8, and then verse 13. 
And yet, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never ends. And now these three things, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here's the context of what Paul is writing. Paul writes to a church in Corinth that is full of factions, jockeying for, for power, for status, and influence. They boast about their gifts. They even boast about their spirituality while engaging in sinful, self-centered, shamelessly self-promoting acts. In chapter 12, Paul tells them that they've been given gifts, and those gifts by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit chooses. They didn't earn them. The Holy Spirit gave them to them. And they are given not for self-aggrandizement or self-promotion, but for the common good. He also says every gift is needed. Every person is needed. Every contribution is needed for the body of Christ to be healthy and productive. And then in chapter 14, Paul instructs them on proper worship, argues that the spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy are not to be used to show off or gain attention, but to help people worship in a peaceful, orderly, understandable, inclusive way that honors God. And in between these two chapters about the proper use of spiritual gifts and the proper way of worship, God, uh, Paul interjects this chapter about love. Love is the most excellent way. He makes clear that love is not a feeling. It's a choice. Love is not a passive sentiment. It all, it, uh, it's an active response to another's need. Love exercises patience. Love expresses kindness. Love does not nurture envy. Love is never self-centered. It always seeks the good of another. Love is not cheap. It is costly, sacrificial, daily. Again, love never fails, never ends. Love is essential to all that we are and do as Christ's church. And now these three remain, Paul says, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So keep all of what I just said in your minds as I continue on to our passage from Galatians 
I'll be reading the, verse, the first two verses and jumping to, chapter, to verse 6, and then to verses 13 to 18. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. For in Christ Jesus, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, the like. I warned you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me stop here for a minute. You'll notice the fruit of the Spirit overlaps with what Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13. For Paul, love isn't just one of the fruits of the Spirit, not even the most important fruit of the Spirit. Love is the foundation, the basis for all the fruit of the Spirit. And against such things, going back to the passage, against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let us not become worried to, this is chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 9 and 10. Let us not become worry, uh, weary in doing good for the, at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So again, the context. Paul tells the church in Galatia that they've been set free. Set free from what? From the law of Moses and the detailed rules for spiritual behavior. Instead of the law to guide them, they've been given the Holy Spirit who lives in them. Paul is making contrast between two ways of living. 
They can live under the law or they can live under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And then second, Paul says that they are not set free from the law to indulge their worldly desires, to do whatever they want to do. They are set free from the law in order to be released to love. To love. Now, like the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia also has factions and is full of divisions. But the underlying motivations are different. In Galatia, too, there's plenty of pride and desire for power, but underneath this, there is fear. There's a group of Jewish sort of pseudo-Christians. We call them Judaizers, who come to the mostly Gentile church in Galatia, and they preach a false gospel. They argue that faith in Jesus is not enough, that obeying the law of Moses is also necessary to be acceptable to God. The two key practices they highlight are circumcision and keeping the Jewish food laws, keeping kosher. Now, these are the special laws that mark off the Jew from the Gentile. In essence, they argue that Gentiles must become Jews in order to become God's people. Now, this was a form of cultural imperialism, the view that one culture is superior to another. You must become like us to be acceptable. Now, why is this important to the Judaizers? Why do they want to preach this false gospel? Well, first, they do believe that their culture, their Jewish culture, is better than Gentile culture, superior to any other culture. But second, they fear that they will lose their place of privilege in the world. They will lose their special status as a distinctive people of God. For these Jews, the law was essentially a special contract between God and Israel. And this meant Jews were special. To be acceptable to God, they would have argued, meant one has to join them, become a Jew, become like them. So they feared dishonoring God, but they feared losing their special place in the world. Now, it may be that this sounds familiar to you. The black church was founded in 1797 in Philadelphia. And the only reason there's a black church in America is because the white church wouldn't accept black Christians as equal members. The white church, even though they preached the true gospel, lived under a false narrative, a false gospel, where they were committed to protecting their special status. And so the church was divided, not allowed to be one. Now, these Judaizers in Galatia had gained some influence over the Gentile converts of Jesus. Now, why would Gentile believers listen to Judaizers? It's because I think all of us struggle to believe that grace is enough. We think we have to follow rules in order to make ourselves good enough. And they fell prey to that. Some of them fell prey to that. So there are divisions in the church and arguments of what, what it means to be a true Christian, acceptable to God. Paul called this a false and divisive gospel. And he tells them they were set free from the law 
set free to depend on and live by the Holy Spirit. Those who've been set free by God through Christ and in the spirit of those who live out their life of freedom by loving others, Paul says in Galatians 5. They're free to develop relationship with others are marked by such things as kindness and goodness. And this, is, this freedom is why Paul can say in Galatians 3 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. In other words, by the Spirit we are all equal, all welcome, no second-class citizens, no hierarchies of value, no superior culture, all belonging to one together as brother and sister. For Paul, love is divine by Christ's sacrificial giving of his life in love. Love is inspired by God's spirit. Love is expressed in doing good in all of our relationships with one another, especially in our relationships within the church. For the church then, what really counts is faith. Faith in Christ expressed, expressing itself in love. Now, what does this look like? What does it mean for us? We do, what are we called to? We're, we're called to do what really counts. We demonstrate faith expressing itself in love. Now, during our current need to practice physical distancing, Christ's love calls us as a church to find creative and effective ways to open our hearts, open our homes, open our lives to one another, one another across obstacles of physical distancing, but also barriers of race and color and class and culture and family background and political perspective. And it is to see one another, really see one another, and to treat one another as sister and brother with mutual and interdependent respect, dignity, trust, value, affection, and concern. Now, being together in our church building is wonderful, but it's not essential. What is essential is we are together in Christ. And the opportunity to be in union with Christ and therefore also in communion with one another remains. Christ is the one who initiates, enables, and sustains the worship, the generosity, and community of the journey church. In Christ, all things are possible. So let's keep doing, for as long as it's necessary, what we are currently doing. Let's keep gathering together in corporate worship and in our life rooms, even if it's through our screens. Let's keep wearing our masks when we gather together physically and keeping social distance, not because we have to, because we love one another, want to protect one another. Let's keep praying for one another, Daily, fervently, perseveringly, let's keep looking out for one another and connecting with one another via any and every means possible. Phone calls, texts, Zooms, notes, care packages, any way possible. I've been awed by all the ways you have been reaching out to one another, responding to the needs you see. People from the journey are delivering meals all across the city. People are doing online tutoring of students. They're providing uh, 
PPE stuff, masks, gloves, sanitizers to anybody who needs it. People are expressing generosity. Many of you keep, are kept giving. Our continue to give sacrificially, even though you've had some loss of income. Many whose incomes have remained stable have stepped forward to give more. You've given to our general fund, to our Journey Care Fund, to the Worcester Together Fund, and directly to other nonprofits and families needing a little help right now. Let's keep doing that. Now, I want to talk about the moral crisis as well. Racism, racism has been a part of our country's history from the very beginning. The murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Adnow Friday night's killing in Atlanta of Richard Brooks by an Atlanta police officer. These things are nothing new. What may be new is that those of us who are white now find them impossible to ignore or explain away. On May 29th, the country was told that the autopsy, autopsy of George Floyd, quote-unquote, revealed no physical, uh, no physical findings to support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxiation, and that, quote-unquote, potential intoxicants and pre-existing cardiovascular disease likely contributed to his death. In other words, the original police report said nothing about a neck to the knee. It was only the existence of video evidence that revealed the truth of what happened. Many of us saw the videos of George Floyd's murder and were shocked and staggered by what we saw. But what if there'd been no video of George Floyd's murder? We might have believed that original autopsy report. In an article in the Scientific American entitled George Floyd's Autopsy and the Structural Gaslighting of America, the authors, 12 physicians, wrote, in America, widespread anti-black violence is often paired with structural gaslighting, racism, after all, thrives when blame for its ice outcomes are misattributed, when black families are refused loans and criminally discriminatory housing schemes, their credit is blamed, when youth of color are disproportionately stopped and frisked, they are told the process is random and for their safety, and when black people are killed by police, their character and even their anatomy is turned into justification for their killer's exoneration. As a nation, we must face the truth. Our country has a long history of racism, of allowing systemic and structural racism to be embedded in the very fabric of our social, cultural, political, cultural, and even religious life. So here's another what if. What if we all took Pastor Tom's plea seriously to listen to the stories and hear the experiences of our brothers and sisters of color, to listen and learn without being defensive or self-protective, to listen and believe them, to listen and lament with them. 
What if we committed to reading about our nation's history, to learning about our history of racism? What if we committed all of us to reading to, as a start the myth of equality? Yes, Pastor Tom invited us to do. And what if, motivated by Christ's love, we took action? What if our church took an active role together with others in rooting out structural racism where we see it in our community? Let me say this. I believe government matters. I believe that good laws matter. Good laws restrain evil and promote the common good. Good laws, good government has limits. They cannot make us love, but they can restrain evil. And here's the other part of it. Christ's love can shape us. Christ's love can shape us. But if we don't put that love into action, bad laws remain. Structural racism endures. So we have to love by the Spirit of God. And we have to express that love with whatever means, including political and cultural means, is available to us. So what if we all also took personally the injustice that our black brothers and sisters experiences an attack on our, on our family, because they are our family, and stood with them whenever they experienced some act of racism? What if we said, too, that we will not allow things to stay the way, to stay the way they currently are? That it's not okay for our black mothers to worry every time their kids go out to play. It's not okay that a brother or sister is pulled over and harassed simply for driving while black. And while we're at it, what if we said we will do everything we can so that kids don't have to go to bed hungry in our community? That single moms and single dads, too, don't have to raise kids by themselves. Families don't have to live in unsafe housing. Elderly people don't get forgotten and left to live alone with no one to visit, check on them. It's a pipe dream, right? It's a fantasy, right? But what if it's God's fantasy? The journey is built on God's fantasy. You see, in God's world, the dead rise from the grave, the lost found, the sick are healed, the lame walk, the blind see, the hopeless find meeting, the fatherless are adopted into families. Enemies are reconciled and they become friends. The oppressed find justice, the poor find bread. The good news of the gospel rolls forth like a mighty tide. People taste and see that the Lord is good. We are God's church. We are the hope of the world. We're created in love, forging Christ's blood shed for us. We're sustained by the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are propelled into the world by Christ's kingdom gospel. And we are sent to be the foretaste and the witness of the new world that Christ is preparing for us even now. We are God's church. We are God's family. The new humanity made up of people from every color, 
culture, and class, equally loved by God, united with one another by, in faith and hope and purpose. We are called to love one another as true brothers and sisters. We've begun, we have been given the keys to Christ's kingdom. We are called to open the doors of salvation and forgiveness of mercy and grace, the doors of repentance and reconciliation, the doors of justice and righteousness, righteousness and wholeness and peace, the doors of faith and hope and love. That's what really counts. May we be who we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are your church. We are your family. We belong to one another and we have set free to be who we are, who we've been called to be since, the, since before even the birth of the world. Lord, help us. Help us to live out our salvation in fear and trembling, in faith and hope and love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.